I much of this week was listening to Carrie Fisher's audiobook, oh, okay. uh, The Princess Diaries. Did you read it? I haven't read The Princess Diaries yet, but I loved with Princess Diaries, I should say. Yeah. Um, I, I I left it feeling very very saddened for all sorts of reasons. One of which is she writes in her diary at age nineteen better than I do with like mm-hmm. clear thought at age thirty nine. She describes Harrison Ford as a dyed in the wool a dyed in the wool Marlboro man who pours out a beer and then eats the can. And I'm like, God damn it, woman. Yeah. That's just not even fair. There's a reason why she was such an amazing script doctor. You know? Which and I it, it makes me nuts the amount of people who turn around and say, Oh, she you know, who cares? She was just a druggie. She she was just Princess Leia. She never did anything of any merit or any note, and I'm going, Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, step up. Yeah, no. read this. Yeah, seriously. You know, and, I, and you can find all kinds of examples of, hey, read this. And whether she's... It doesn't even matter that she's writing about herself. No. Because she writes about herself so well. Uh, yeah, it was it was a, kind of a bittersweet week. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 180 of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie-loving podcast of my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. The somewhat clever part of me, not all that clever part of me, thought I would take episode 180 and do something that was completely out of sort for myself. Like, like turn a 180 and like put it on, you know, make it a theme. But I thought, no, that's, I just I can't run with that. That's too much work for the summer. And really, truly, I just I couldn't come up with the full completion of that idea. <laughs> So instead, we've done something far better. We have brought on one of my favorite guests Aww. to talk about a movie uh, that I feel like there, there, there will be words, um, at least according to the text I got earlier on today. Um, a guest that has been all over this show, although she's only going to be doing the third round of questions today, um, and a guest who um, has a really great podcast of her own um, with her, her life partner, her the, the, the J to your silent Bob, the Bob to your... J. <laughs> I like to think he's the J. I'm the silent. That is a question. For I'm more the Yoda. Ep- for the next episode, <laughs> for the next episode, that is a question that you two need to hash out amongst yourself. That voice is Ariel Fisher. She is one of the two co-hosts on a Frame Apart, a podcast you can find on the Modern Superior Network. Ariel Fisher's here. How are you, Ariel Fisher? I'm great. I'm stu- I'm super stoked to be here. I love being on this show. So mostly because I get to tell you you're wrong. Yeah. And that will be no different today, I cool. assure you. Awesome. I have read your review. Oh, no, no, that's not fair. That's Why? Not, well, you put it out I, there I, for I the published, world to I see. published Nobody reads that. You read it. That's, that's, that's the thing. I'm writing it now as if nobody's reading. You're going against the whole... I'm, I'm, bra- I'm shattering the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. I'm ruining everything. You are indeed. Um, on episode 181, we will be talking about The Beguile. We'll flip the record over to play something of the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Ariel. This is Know Your Enemy. So even though Ariel has been on the show by my count about four times now, uh, maybe even five, um, she's only done two rounds of Know Your Enemy because all the other times we were doing shenanigans surrounding Year End and Back to the Future and so on and so on and so on. So the first official appearance on episode 112 where we talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark, we learned the first episode, the first film she'd ever seen in a theater was Home Alone. The last film she'd watched at the time was Chef. 
the worst film she'd ever seen was Legally Blonde 2. That was on the other day. That still holds. That still stands. <laughs> the, <laughs> the unseen classic or essential was Lawrence of Arabia. Any luck there? Uh, no, because I missed it the last time it was uh, at, okay. at yeah, yeah, I'm holding to, out for that one. That's, that's, now it's become a thing. Yep. And the film that she wished she had made was Pulp Fiction. Then, on episode 139, where we talked about Slow West, the movie we discovered that she likes that few other do, that nobody else does, I'm going to say, is Burlesque. <laughs> the film that everybody else <laughs> likes that she does not much care for uh, was a split between Blade Runner and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Still holds. Nice. The last film to make her cry was Big Hero 6. In the movie of her life, she would be played by Katherine Hepburn. Here, here. And the film she was watching next was The Imitation Game. So it's time for round three. <laughs> and I should say now that if there is a change in audio quality in the course of this show, it is because we are trying to out-talk a thunderstorm, so we may or may not change locales over the course of this episode. But, Miss Fisher, interpret this question any way you wish. What was the movie that made your love of film turn a corner? This is a kind of a twofold answer. Of course uh, it is. Of course it, because I can't do anything simply. No. Everything's complicated all the time, always. So the first part of this answer is Annie Hall. Hmm. Which I can't remember even exactly when I saw it. I think I saw it for the first time when I was in high school. And it just completely changed the way I thought films could exist okay. with the breaking of the fourth wall. It was one of the earliest, if not the first, Woody Allen film I had ever seen. And it just it just broke and reformed my brain hmm. around cinema in all of its glory. Uh, and the second part to that answer is also Woody Allen, The Purple Rose of Cairo. Which, which I've never seen. Oh, it's exceptional. Purple Rose of Cairo is Mia Farrow course because there was a stint there right and jeff daniels where he plays a character in a film who leaps off the screen as mia farrow has been going back to the theater repeatedly this is during the great depression okay to watch this film he's in called the purple rose of cairo and she's watched it so many times that he as a character on screen just becomes so enchanted with her in the, th in the theater okay. that he says i have to meet you and he leaps off the screen and they run away and have this whirlwind romance meanwhile the film can't continue while he's absent <laughs> so you know the pr the production studio is losing their minds the actor who plays the character who obviously also played by jeff daniels is getting in a lot of trouble and is sent to bring him back into the film. Oh, this sounds awesome. And so, it all kind of comes to a head in a really beautifully bittersweet kind of way. It's it's incredibly enchanting. And the reason why that one also struck a chord with me, I, I saw that for the first time, I'd say maybe six years ago, give or take. Yeah, give or take. And I had done in high school a play by Woody Allen oh. called Old Saybrook, which has a similar conceit it was written in 2003 there's uh, this couple celebrating their anniversary their 10th anniversary while their sister and brother-in-law are joining them for the festivities and then this couple comes to see the house that they used to live in this torrid tawdry affair comes to light between the sister and the brother-in-law who's celebrating his anniversary and then you find out that all of them except for the couple that came to visit are actually characters in oh, a wow. play written by the playwright who has been hogtied upstairs for like a year. <laughs> and it was this fascinating play, and I put I directed that when I was in high school. So he, he Woody Allen's work has always kind of played a role in how I enjoyed, approached, and dissected the arts as a whole. 
And the Purple Rose of Cairo kind of really helped cement that cinema could do that too, that it could be more than just so theatrical that it had to be confined to the stage. Right. And it's it sucks because now my opinion, well, my opinion of Woody Allen's work has not changed. Right. But Your opinion I can... Of Woody Allen. Has. Right. Talk about Killing Your Darlings. He is the reason why I started to truly love film in a conscious way. Right. So, you know, long so, answer to that question. But it's it's <laughs> it's interesting because, like, it, you know, there's, there's a couple, there's a lot of things in that answer that I, I could dedicate a whole podcast to that answer, really. But I still have four more questions plus a review. <laughs> um, well, I'm not known for being, for breaking. No, no, you know, we're not breaking any records today. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, like what you're describing is the moment that you realize that film can be more. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly when you come to any hall, which I think doesn't work below a certain age. Like it's, it's I, I, I don't really have in mind like what age is appropriate for various movies. Mm-hmm. And I know I saw a lot of movies before I was really ready, but I feel like to get even, not even maximum impact, but to mi- make an impact, you can't watch something like any hall before you're like, at least like 14, 15. Yeah, you know? depending. And then, yeah. and then, yeah, something like Purple Rose of Cairo, where it's like, oh, you know, character in film and script can be about this, and it could do these kinds of things while you're becoming so immersed in the arts yourself. Mm-hmm. What was your first date movie? I don't remember the first movie I ever saw on a date okay. because the date was so uninteresting. I can't even remember the person, let alone awesome. the movie. It likely there likely was a movie because dates for me have always included a movie sure. because yeah. I have you met me? Yeah, you're 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 among friends. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But the the my main like date slash makeout movie when I was a teenager was Interview with the Vampire. <laughs> Far and away, above anything else, oh that was always the one to go back to. I don't, I don't know. Well, no, of course I know why that movie's hottest. Hot yeah, it's oh, it's, it's very hot. You're younger than me, so you would have been. Yeah, ninety four. I didn't see it in theaters. I'm talking. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Sorry. There's this thing that we have. I saw it in theaters when I was. These crazy (laughs) kids today, they have this thing called home video. Yeah, they do. Okay, you (laughs) took the question and kind of, kind of spun it on me, and fine. I'm sorry. My 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 initial answer was a little leading. Okay, so I I so you're the first person to drop the. We rented or got our hands on. Oh, there was there was a copy of that on VHS right, in my home, and, and then threw TV. it on and got through twenty or thirty minutes, and then. Just, oh yeah, probably you know, I'd say twenty twenty five. So I mean, <laughs> so either in your or this young man's basement. Usually mine. Usually yours. I see. <laughs> like, was any of that movie? Because you'd seen it like two or three times by then, at least. I'd probably seen it close to ten by that time. Okay, so I am a, I am a habitual rewatcher of things. So yeah, that I feel like you're rigging the question because you're the first person to answer the question with this. With this was the background noise. Oh really? Yeah. How am I the first person? I don't to do know. That? I don't know. I've, I've heard stories of I didn't see much of it. I've heard stories of like it, like it's almost always a bad movie. I think that was the first one, like kind of a good movie. Did anybody ever say Schindler's List? No, I'm <laughs> waiting for that. I really, really am. I'm really happy no um, one said that. Yet. Okay, but like, listen, at least you're honest. I like it. Okay, uh, what is what is your sick day movie? My sick day movie. I have a list. Of course you do. Of course I do. <clears throat> My sick okay, day movie. Because I have snacks. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> to occupy your time mm-hmm. while I pontificate. Uh, 
generally it varies, but for the most part, stuff like The Princess Bride, the extended cut of the entirety of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, oh, God. Jaws, the Back to the Future trilogy, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade specifically, but usually the Why trilogy. Why specifically? Because that's my favorite of the three. It's not the best of the three. I acknowledge this, okay. but it's my favorite. It always really resonated with me as a kid. So your treatment for being under the weather is to put on the best stuff. Yeah. Basically. Which, and all of this, for the most part, I mean, something like The Princess Bride, it's got Sig movie built right into it, pretty much. Well, yeah. But it's stuff that I grew up watching, right? So I'm super familiar with it. Jaws, I've, for the longest time, Jaws was something that I would put on to go to sleep to. Because I had already seen it so much that it was so familiar and so comfortable. A lot of water sounds. A lot of water sounds, a lot of screaming sounds, you know, that <laughs> ripping of flesh. Soothing to me. Did I ever tell you the story of my dad putting me to sleep when I was a baby? You did. It's all about just basically feeling better, you know, by, yeah. by the sounds of it. Like, it's, it's kind of funny because on the one hand, it sounds like it's really rich stuff. Like, when I'm not feeling good, I don't exactly go for cake. Nah. But, um, you But know. to me... These movies are my boobies matzo ball soup. They're the ultimate in comfort food because they are so familiar. Mm. And they are, you kind of described it as decadent, did you say? Or they're like rich? Rich. Yeah. Much like the snack I'm eating right now. Indeed. But they're very, like with something like The Lord of the Rings, you've got this beautiful sweeping score and you can kind of just fall into it and just kind of sit with it. Well, and it's long, so you don't need to get up and change anything that anytime soon. Too. Yeah. And yeah. then when the movies are done, I usually go onto the special features because oh, those are special features. You're movies. dedicated when you're sick. That's I, not, no, no. Well, no. I sleep through a lot of it, okay. but I come in and out. You know, right. it's, it's a thing. What was the last film to leave you speechless? I had to really think about this one. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't really consider that question, but <laughs> okay. But the... The last film, one of the few films to leave me truly speechless, I guess in a positive way. So I can think about a lot of films that I've walked out of. Actually, there are too many films that I've walked out of where I've just kind of been meh and had nothing to say. Yeah. But a film that truly struck me mute, uh, Germany Pale Mother. Which I have not seen, so it what, is, what's it about? It's. I don't say a German Pale Mother. It. <laughs> Although, it's uh, from 1980, it's the story of, uh, it's basically the story of World War II told from the perspective of a young woman from adolescence through marriage to the war hitting, and then the aftermath of the war. Oh, okay. And it's, it's really, really heavy. It's, it was from 1980, directed, written and directed by Helma... Helma Sanders Browns. And what about it left, like, just the, really hit you? Oh, the emotional impact. It hits with the force of a thousand tons. Oh my god. It's, it's incredibly profound. It's an amazing film. It's the type of film that you watch maybe once every ten years, and that's almost too much. Okay. You don't rewatch it often, unless obviously you have to. Right. I keep wanting to incorporate it into the show on A Frame Apart yeah. sometimes, because it, it really illuminates the perspective of not all of the Germans during the war were Nazis. We have to remember that these people were people and yeah. that they were profoundly impacted by the war on their own, yeah. let alone the impact of the atrocities of the Nazis and everything else. You know, the, the, the very real human struggles, like being a woman 
trying to scavenge for food with your two-year-old daughter in tow while your husband's off fighting and coming across troops and getting gang raped. Like, it's, serious, heavy, heavy things that happen. It's not the kind of thing that most studios want to dedicate a few million dollars to, no. that, that most directors want to dedicate several months of their lives to. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's why people don't think that way, is those stories aren't told often enough. Um, yeah. You know, like, for every... For every one All Quiet on the Rest Western Front, there's a zillion, you know, films of the World War the world whatever conflict from the winning side. Yes. Like there are so few stories from the losing side. And, um, and which is which to me sounds like far more complicated. It is, but I think it's equally as important and that's I, I watched it while I was in fourth year third or fourth year in university and I was taking a course on German cinema mm. and so we went through everything I left class walked home sat down on the couch in the living room and sobbed for a half an hour like just heaving like I bolted out of class because I could not it just it's it ends on such a profoundly depressing note in and it couldn't end any other way. This isn't a story that has a happy ending. It ends as Germany is trying to rebuild what they've wrought, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And you just feel so terribly for this woman. Oh, man. I'm going to have to track this down and, like, just buckle up and yeah, it's, be in it. Yeah. Um, okay, last but not least, uh, what movie quote be your epitaph? This was, like, the hardest question. I sat with it for a while. Uh, I've, I, this is a question, though, that I have got some fantastic answers to. Yeah. So. Well, I debated there's no crying in baseball. That's a good one. But I also debated it's the heart that makes it great. Okay. Same, same movie, of course. Yeah. But I settled on something from Anne of Avonlea, or Anne the sequel. Okay. Anne of Green Gables the sequel, from 1937. Okay. I went looking for my dreams outside of myself and discovered it's not what the world holds for you. It's what you bring to it. That's so sweet. Oh, my God. We just watched for the show we did uh, at the end of last month, of June. That is the last month that just happened. We, uh, we did an Eat Your Darts episode where I watched for the very first time Anne of Green Gables. The Megan Follows Anne of Green Gables. I had never seen it before. Wow. And it was within the first ten minutes, as soon as Matthew has her in the carriage and they're riding along the path, yeah. immediately after he picks her up from the train station, yeah. I was sobbing. And Bob looks at me, he's like, what's wrong with you? We haven't even got, what, what's going on? And like, like, the, the, I wish I had her in my life as a little girl. If, if I didn't, uh, you know, if, if I didn't know what was coming in this episode, I would say that we should subtitle it, <laughs> Ariel is sobbing at various moments. <laughs> But I don't think that's. I don't I, think that's the case. I'm still convinced I have abnormally small tear ducts. I, what can I Maybe. say? Maybe like, are in general, are you a crier when it comes to movies? Oh yeah, really? I'm a crier in general when it comes to in general. Life, right. <laughs> when it comes to existing. I see. We are going to move on to the new slang. However, I should put out there that I believe, and I haven't asked you, but maybe you'll concur, maybe you'll disagree, but I believe that The Beguiled is a movie that is best just gone into without knowledge and watched as a complete... Um, I have seen trailers for this movie that frame it incorrectly. I've seen trailers for this movie that give away a lot of stuff. 
Mm -hmm. So, on the one hand, if you haven't seen it, I might advise seeing the movie and then coming back to this conversation. Um, I would agree. If not, just be forewarned that we are going to talk about this movie as a complete, because there are what I consider spoilers that cannot be avoided um, and just need to be discussed. So, you have been warned. We will uh, be talking about The Beguiled right after this in all its spoiler glory. Beguiled is written and directed by Sofia Coppola. It's based on the novel by Thomas uh, Coulinon and the original screenplay by Albert Maltz and Irene Camp. It stars Nicole Kidman, Colin Farrell, Kirsten Dunst, Elle Fanning, and Guri Rice, Una Lawrence, Addison Riki, 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 one of those, and Emma Howard. I can pronounce that. <laughs> the Beguiled is a simple story. In Civil War era Virginia, uh, there is a boarding schoolhouse where five young women are still taught their daily lessons by two teachers that keep the home fires burning without any assistance from any men or any help. One, when one of the younger sisters is off gathering food for dinner, she happens upon a wounded Union soldier. She brings him back to the house, expecting the school mistress will promptly turn him over to the next passing Confederate unit as a prisoner of war. Instead, the women decide to take a more human approach and first nurse the soldier back to health before taking any further action. This decision leads to the delicate harmony of life in this wartime plantation to be thrown for a serious, serious loop. Sofia Coppola has made her entire career on telling stories dealing with the isolation and malcontent of rich white people. <laughs> exclusively rich white people. That's not to say that the upper class don't have interesting stories to tell, and that's not to say that she doesn't tell them very well. It's just underlining that the tales of this director are being drawn from the same well. Now, from that same well, we draw the begot. A story of quiet tension from a feminist point of view, but nevertheless, a story of rich white people. So pop quiz hotshot. Does this film do enough to buck the trend? Or is it time for Coppola to pick a new lane? It's time for Coppola to pick a new lane. Hands down, without question. This really? is a white feminist film. Okay. And I mean, I I like Coppola's work. I really do. Uh, I think something like, I was actually, <laughs> I was having a, a Facebook discussion, because <laughs> those go so well. I was going to say. But this actually did, uh, with uh, Danita Seinberg, commented she's behind what about Merrill a podcast you can also check out that I had, I had mentioned I was really displeased with the film she mentioned she was quite happy with it and we were discussing her lavish representation of fabrics and jewelry and how you're so kind of entranced throughout the film with these gorgeous things mm -hmm. and all of this beautiful stuff mm -hmm. and it's true she she films that really beautifully but I think she accomplishes it infinitely better in a film like Marie Antoinette, which I adore. Good, because we'll be talking about that later. Oh, good. Because <laughs> it's it's sumptuous, it's decadent, it's lavish, it's lush, it's sensual, 
it's good across the board. Right. But with this particular film, I think I made the... I'm, t I'm torn between whether or not this was a mistake, but I watched the original like a few hours before going to see this version. Okay, which I've never seen. And it's... there's... I can't really spoil anything for you. Right. Because you've, you've seen yeah. the new one, right. so you know. Right. But having seen this version now, Sophia made some bad bad decisions, I'm particularly to... pertaining to race. Okay, so uh, but for starters, there I'm gonna call I'm gonna call shenanigans there for a second and just say, without that as context within the within this film itself, this film itself. But you, like I, I still your your point is still valid. No, I get Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Let's discuss this as an entity, and so, then we can potentially to me it. to to answer my own question. Um, I do think it is time for her. I I'm, I'm I'm basically playing both sides of the fence to answer my own question because I do believe it is time for her to pick a new lane. The big criticism of this movie is by including the one line of the slaves left. She yeah. immediately eradicates her presence. She, but she unties her hands yep. in one line of dialogue, which on the one hand. Nice move. But on the other hand... Eh. It's, like in, it's like in Thank You for Smoking. All we have to do is in, say one line, thank God we invented the whatever machine, and then they can smoke in space. Yeah. I mean, like, it's not implausible that the slaves ran off. It's, but at the same time, it, like anybody who has half a brain in their head can see the trick. So I, I, I want her to tell other stories. I, I want her to get... Uh, a little lower class, and I certainly want a little bit more diversity in the story. But she, this particular film, I can't hang out to dry for that. I could have, I could have hung this on her easier with other films in her career. This, I actually feel, is is her clicking on all cylinders and working at her best. See, that's the problem for me. She's older now. She's made more films now. She's more experienced. But she hasn't she made that many. She hasn't made She's that She's been many. around a long time, but her career is actually, like, you can, you can and, watch them all in a day. But all of her films have been immensely praised. Mm -hmm. She's also a Coppola, let's well, not forget. Yes. She's also a white woman. Yes. She comes from immense privilege. Yes. She has more power than I think most people are willing to acknowledge. Oh, she has tons. She has so much power. She can make these films, number one. Yeah. She has that ability. Yeah. There are a number of women who would love to spend this many years making so few films to still have a lucrative career, a critically acclaimed career, right. and to still have the pick of the litter of what their next project is going to be, and to be able to drop projects. She just dropped The Little Mermaid. Yeah, but coming off the bling ring, like this is this is a very interesting follow-up coming off of bling ring and somewhere, which are more far more modern and interested in what our culture is now, at least from her point of view. Um, but where I where I like to kind of underscore with a career like this is, you know, to your point of you can you have immense power, you can pick and choose your projects, you can abandon projects, you can go out there and say, I don't want to make a blockbuster, which she has. She's gone on record saying, I don't want to make a studio picture because it's not what I feel I'm going to do as well as I can do my stuff. Okay, fine. At this point in your career, what I hope to see is the idea that she fosters somebody else along. That, that to me, is, is what... As opposed what, to in her own work. Uh, yeah, like, if you're going to say, I am staying in this lane, mm -hmm. and power to her. Like, she, you know, Scorsese stays very firmly in a lane. Spielberg stays very squ squarely in a lane. And, you know, she's not the first director to stick to one thing. 
I'm not going to really rake her over the coals for that so much as I want her to find somebody up and coming or somebody who hasn't been able to get their breaks and say, I want to help you tell your stories. And whether it's through her own studio or talking with the studios that she works with, mm -hmm. that's where I feel like it's it, that she can do something like that. My big issue comes from, and it does lead, because I saw the other film first, because I had I to. still say that's not fair, but go on. It's it, it's not, but it is. Okay. It's I get why it isn't, and I get that the film should, should be able to stand on its own two legs, but yeah. the fact is, she erased a part of the film that was socially and politically and historically pertinent and relevant and impactful. Hallie is one of the characters, she's the only black character in the original. She's also in the book, from what I've heard. I yeah. haven't been able to find enough material without reading the book, which okay. I didn't have the time to do before this, unfortunately. Quitter. <laughs> Slow reader. <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, she is a really fascinating character. She adds levity to interesting moments. She has a sense of humor. She's one of the only people who has her head out of the clouds because she's a slave. Yeah. She also serves as a gateway for opening brief but important conversations about her role as a black woman, being fetishized as a black woman, her risk of rape by white men, yeah. risk of rape by, by Civil War soldiers, by Yankees, the discussion of whether or not she should care which side wins because that means her freedom. Yeah. All of these things are brought into the film in the original that probably amount to a grand total of five or six minutes of dialogue. They're simple things that are just peppered throughout. But in that simple peppering, yeah. you change the dynamic of the entire film. In her simple decision, her easy way out yeah. of saying all the slaves ran away, yeah. she completely negates her responsibility as a woman of privilege to discuss, even tertiarily, yeah. that these people existed, yeah. that they were relevant, that they mattered, and that they matter now. To whitewash a film that is set during the Civil War, yeah. while we're dealing with all of these issues of Black Lives Matter and, they, and, and all of these other political issues surrounding race and gender inequality, to eradicate that because you're afraid of not doing it justice, to me, is lazy. It's, it's what, the safe way out. But what I wonder, though, <clears throat> is... I, I do wonder if she has said it wasn't her story to tell. So I do wonder if... she. I, I, listen, she's a talented the, the, filmmaker. She's a talented writer. Coppola is a talented writer, a talented filmmaker. I believe, in my heart of hearts, she could have done it well. I also do understand her saying, I, I wanted to leave it be. Um, the thing, though, that I feel like... It has to be said, though. That, right. But at the same time, what you were talking about with the German film earlier was you were saying, we need to remember the stories of the losing side and of the families of the losing side. And that's what this is. It's like... But it's these, not. Because it's, it, not about, it's not about how this... How these people are impacted um, from the war, with, sure the, it is. with the exception of a woman's isolation, alienation, and deprivation of sexual of sexual desire, but, and of being treated like a woman. In the opening of the original film, there's a really fascinating. But even line. In, no, but just even for their lives. This is a man who. Spoiler alert! In case you're still with <laughs> us, this is a man who turns very violent on them. Uh, yes. You know, this is a man who is a very big risk. A man from the winning side, we should say. Yeah. You know, like, these people are on the losing side of history. Um, but but a man who they have brought in under the idea of Christian charity, who still is 
a threat by his very existence. It's complicated that she decided to eradicate that part of the story. I, at the same time, I want to give her props and say that she actually drew focus to the story that she wanted to tell. But the y yes and no. You were you know you were saying it's not her story. Like we've said, it wasn't her story to tell. Right. Mm -hmm. The book was written by a white man. The original film was written and directed by a white man. But that's most of art throughout exactly. the last. Exactly. So you know, why is it years. not? So why is it not a, a white woman's right to do the same? That's where everything in white feminism stems from. The idea that it's well, it's their story. It's not mine. Right. It's not my story to tell. It's not my job to go there. It is your job. It is my job as a white woman, as a white fem as a feminist who happens to be Caucasian. Who, right. Well, white. That word's kind of shitty too. The the dialogue with Hallie still pertains to what makes a man predatory and what makes this man predatory across the board. Someone who tried to charm Hallie at the beginning as well, as he charms all of them. Yeah. But that's, and that's but the, the other same thing. Time, again, so, but again, we keep coming back to the same problem that if you hadn't seen that movie... I would still you, find issue. You would, would still find issue, but you might not find as big an issue. If no, you I, walked into this blind... And without, like, without, without being armed with that information, you would be coming away from sorry, it's something very differently. We haven't even talked about technique, which in this movie is off the chart. It is, but it also isn't. She makes some really strange decisions when it comes to uh, where she's pulling focus yeah. and and how she frames some of her shots. Sometimes they're not done quite. It, it, she she just makes a, a few too many strange choices that she, just don't work. She, wow. Okay. Well, that, that, I was gonna say that's the difference. Is I, a lot of times I like her strange choices. She, she's she's come too. up with some really strange shots yeah, and I over the years, and a lot of them issues. have stuck with me. The one thing, like I've had my, I've kind of come back and forth and back and forth on Coppola through the years. The one thing I have never said about her is she can't shoot a movie because no. man, does she like she picks great people to shoot her movies mm -hmm. and has a like great eye with these people um and i will agree with you there and the one thing that like you know the thing that i was actually latching to the most about this movie is the sound of it because it's a movie that we constantly have this rumble of cannon fire in the background to remember that while this little story is going on mm -hmm. it's happening in the middle of a country being ripped apart of great violence being just outside their walls and not you know affecting the violence within the walls worth a lick you know, th that that is what that these children have been conditioned to, that, yeah, you're going to hear some guns off in the distance, just don't worry. Unless the walls really start shaking, then we'll get worried. But if that were me, I'd be like, are you kidding? That's close, dude. I'm, I'm going, like, I'm either going home, or going up in my room, screw you, try and teach me the French. You can teach yourself the French, I'm going to be over here. Well, that's, and, and, and it's just, and it's extent, a subtle, and it's a subtle inclusion that reminds you of what's happening outside. And to that extent, there are elements that I can read into the film that I can read value into the film with that, that the idea is that no matter what is happening, it is still a woman's duty to remain composed, to be the bastion of strength and stability throughout everything, yeah. and to be able to be mother, daughter, friend, and, and wife, and yeah. bedfellow to all, yeah. and the unrealistic uh, expectations that are placed on women. To that extent, I can see how she was trying to land that, 
I don't think she did. This was one of the most wow. bored I've been during oh one of her films. God. Seriously, and I and I really I like was a her lot work. of things, but I was not bored I for was, a minute. In the I was wow. bored. I was bored. She somehow managed to take a film where the original was 145 was an hour and 45 minutes, make it 15 minutes shorter, and make it feel 30 minutes longer. I was shocked. I was oh really surprised. Goodness. I came in prepared to love it and to be able to say, I get the arguments, but I really enjoyed it. And I get I, the arguments, I really enjoy it. This is and I, I did not expect this conversation I, at all today. I know. <laughs> oh man. But it I it's yeah, I can't get over really just the fact that this is this is not her best work. She has done better, she's capable of more. So as just a standalone film in and of itself. I just don't think it's, I don't think it's bad right. by any stretch. I'm being very hard on it. And, Which is and, fine. And like deliberately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, it's not her best work. She's done better. She's capable of more. And I still, and I, I can't quite get over the fact that she has presented to us this idea of, like you said, they're protected within these walls. They're protected within the gates of this community. Well, I don't even really think that they're protected. They're just, this is just the reality that they accept. Yes, it's the reality that they accept, and it's the reality they're so complacent in their, in their safety that the girls still want to rush off and meet these dangerous men because they're so sure that, they, that they're fine. That everything's going to be fine no matter what. You have the, you know... Well, part of the, I think part of that is talking about you know, the complete just immaturity and innocence of children that don't fully understand of what's the, going on. Of the little girls, yes. Of Elle Fanning, no. No, um, Elle Fanning, well, Elle Fanning no. is a, Elle Fanning, the thing I like about Elle Fanning in this, in this movie is she's a dangerous kind of immature. She's, it, there's a lot baked into her character. She's, she's reckless. That's, she's very reckless. But, but it's all packed in there really tightly and just, it works in the way she speaks, it works in the way that she looks. It's certainly, you know, whether she's talking to one of the other girls or whether she's talking to Colin Farrell, um, I you you get a lot from her. Elf Anning is a she's an actor who's just come just leaps and bounds every time I see her. I she's very quickly becoming the kind of actor who she she plays, I go. Yeah. You know, which at a young age is really kind of unreal. Um but, I wasn't thrilled with her in this, honestly. Oh my god, I've got I nothing. Um I just, you know, her, her whole approach of trying to charm this, trying to charm the enemy, literally, she's trying to charm an enemy combatant, you know, who could be very dangerous to all of them because they have no idea what he's about, just that he's hurt and he's not armed, so he's not a threat. Mm -hmm. And the minute he is armed, hey, look at that, he's also a threat again. Um, and, but she's like, you know, hey, cute man. You know, and the way that she talks with the other girls and says, like, oh, you made pie? Is that my recipe? You know, like, like stuff like that. That was Edwina. Sorry, that was Ed, that was Edwina. That's right. Uh, yeah, because she made the pie. She made it the pie. It was Edwina's but recipe. It, what, it, did she ask, sorry, she asked Edwina if it was her recipe or? No, Edwina says, oh, is that my recipe? Oh, uh, yes, yes. Because that's, they're still all kind of peacocking. Although yeah. I know that's a male P tendency. They're peaheading. Sure, yes. Let's, let's make that a word. Yeah. It, it's not, but for the we'll, purposes We'll make it. We'll, we'll still I, call it peacocking. Why you know, not? because I mean... They're brandishing I, their feathers. Sure. I mean, I've talked before on this show, when we did the episode about um, girlhood, uh, we were talking about how you can have a group of girls together, and the second a boy shows up, the dynamic changes dramatically. Mm -hmm. They can be thick as thieves, but the second you get any kind of boy, known or unknown, into the room, 
the entire dynamic is going to change. I, I feel like this is the other kind of movie like that. Like, we didn't get a whole lot of time with the girls without the corporal, but you could see they probably had another version of shorthand with each other without him there, and the second he arrives, everything kind of gets turned on its head. Yeah. And there's a lot being left unsaid to them and to us, but if you watch it enough, I thought... It's hard. I want to like it. It's so pretty. It is. It is really pretty. This is is what the conversation is. is, But it's so pretty. And it is. She's she's really good at making things look good. I don't think it's the best looking film she's made. I think that the scenery did a lot of the work for her. Because how could it not? That set was stunning. The grounds were gorgeous. And the like, just the foliage that was around everywhere was. But I mean, even beautiful. when she's inside the house, like when she's inside, yeah. like she. But again, she did the better set inside, was stunning. She did, no, but she did better inside of this house than Quentin Tarantino did inside of the Hateful Eight. Yeah, but that's because the Hateful Eight is bad. Well, this on this we agree. <laughs> um, it's you know like the other thing that we haven't talked about yet is the violence of this movie, which you're you know you're a fan of genre. I am a fan. And I am a fan of horror and genre of all kinds. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> I am somewhat a fan. I'm not as deep a fan as you, um, but this is a very particular kind of violent movie in the way, like the way I described it, which you read because apparently you do that, um, <laughs> is that the cocking of the knife is just as violent as the blow, possibly more so, and the whole much of this movie is the arm reached back with the blade. There's there there's Remind very, me? there's very well there's very little bloodshed in this movie. Yes, I loved when he falls and they bring him into the room yeah. and Nicole Kidman is standing at his head. Yeah, not even drenched in blood, but in this perfectly white French linen lace. gown, yeah, uh, like nightgown. Yeah, and just with the perfect amount of blood across her torso. On her hands and just at the base of her sleeves. Yeah, it is such an exquisitely done shot. Yeah, it is. That was one of my favorite shots because the backdrop is just black. They're lit by candlelight. Everything is very intense, and Nicole Kidman is just there. Yeah, Miss Martha is just there, present in the moment. This is what we have to do, yeah. and within an instant, she knows what she's going to do. And it's but this was here. It comes to one of the main cruxes of why I find this film to be so unsuccessful. Okay. Motivation. It is not clearly enough laid out. The characters are not set up or exposed to us properly enough from the from the outset in order to remotely merit their insane decision. You don't necessarily... In this version, you find yourself questioning, did she actually... Spoiler alert, guys. Did she actually cut off his leg to spite him? But they weren't even really no. flirting that much. No, that like I, I did not believe that that was anything that 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 was any possibility. But it was. Was it really? Yep. Oh. What? This is why but I she, have no, the problem. But she doesn't know. How could she? How could she do that? She doesn't know. This whole incident plays out in a heartbeat. Yep. And just you know, that's why I say well, this is a violent movie. When things crash in this movie, they crash. Hard. But this this, was this all like that's and that's why I was saying like you know the the violent act of cocking back the blade because you know that when it's coming down it's coming down like with just brute force mm-hmm. you know and that's the thing is that this movie just winds it up and when it unloads when that top starts to spin of catching him with El Fanning and getting pushed down the stairs and he lands and they've got to make a decision in an instant it's just 
it's it's chaos <laughs> contained within a span of like four minutes. It's not a lot of screen time. That whole scene just plays so quick. It does. And it totally does. And it does in the, the original, and it does in the book. But she at that time has no idea of the. She has no idea of him dallying around with her girls. Yes, he, has, he does. Yes, she, she does. Does she? Yes, of course she oh, does. Well, she, she Elle Fanning comes she down does, well, the she stairs. Yeah, she's well, in she her nightgown. Edwina tells her outright, and she's crying about the fact that he wasn't with her. They, this is where my big problem lies. She is adapting a screenplay. She just says he fell. She doesn't. She Elle doesn't, says he fell. But she didn't talk to the fact that she, he, she pushed him. No, because Edwina pushed him. No, sorry. Like that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Edwina doesn't cop to that. No, but it's not about and whether she, knows, or not she like, pushed him. Miss Martha does that. know that the girls are sweet on him because she makes the point of, "Oh, yeah. look, like you're wearing your you're wearing your brooch now," and he seems to be affecting all of us she like this. Sees, but I don't. This you, is okay. So this is my big, big, big issue. Okay. This is an adaptation. This is a remake. Mm-hmm. Under no circumstances is it anything different. This is a remake. I'm not even going to call it an adaptation. Mm-hmm. It is a remake. It is so close to the original film and consequently to the source material that this is a remake of original material. That being said, she does not represent intent, motivation, and character development substantially enough, so much so that fundamental aspects of character motivation as to why she cuts off his leg go over everyone's head who are unaware of the original. But that's the thing, is that for me, the, the intent of cutting off his leg is otherwise he dies. But she's already she's already taken him in. She's already let her girls get sweet on him. She's already fed him very very well. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, maybe you'll hang around. Yeah. And you know, there, there's and no talk of turning him back over. She is just doing this because otherwise he dies. But and that's, he dies that night. But that's not it's true. Clear. That's not the truth in her story. In and this story, it in, is. No, it isn't. In the story of this movie in no, 2017. No, it isn't. And here's you why. Read, you, no, read, no. you read ahead. That's not fair. No, I didn't. So, but here's my question, though, is... Well... Fundamentally, though, what's wrong with that? Because me, if, because what? No, because if you say, here's a story, and I think I can extract a story from this story mm-hmm. and turn it into a very different story, which works for me and does not work for you... But this is the thing. Well, like, if, you if, know, that's that's the thing. is If you're going to co- if you're gonna cover a song, don't cover it note for note. No. If you're going to remake something and adapt it into your own reimagining, yeah. whether you're... Dis- if you're going to distance yourself from the source material, if you're going to give new motivation, new plot structure, go different. If you're going to go different, go way different. Because if want, it's you too close... To adapt this for, you wanted her to go further. If she was going to make it totally different, okay. and it's about the violence of men, yeah. and not the violence of women... Which this story is technically about. Yeah. It's about their 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 rage. It's about their desire, their sexuality, their impulse. All of these it's things. About, it's about their protective nature too. I yes, think. It's, it is. You know, it's, but it's about all of that. And the yeah. problem being, the original source material is about that. She has still made the film, and having seen the original, I can say this: it is cl- it is so close to the original that it's no longer it's it's too close to be this different. Right. It's like if, it's like if you're redecorating your kitchen and you want to paint the top cupboards and the bottom cupboards in the kitchen different colors, yeah. you don't go with slate gray and Ash almost gray. black. Yeah, right. You go with white and like navy blue. Yeah. If you're going to go bold and different, it'll work. Yeah. The contrast works. It makes it believable. It allows you to distance yourself from the source material and it allows itself to stand alone but, even though it's drawing right, from the same is, well. Right, but this, this does is, not go know, different but this enough. This is the, the, the biggest 
problem here is that you saw that movie and yep. I did not. And we're not even talking about her like remaking Casablanca here. No. We're talking about her remaking a film that's somewhat obscure. Yeah. You know, and, and, and like, what, 40 years after its day, reframing it slightly differently. I, I, I Don't get me wrong, if anybody who comes out at the angle that you did, they're going, this is, the crazy thing about this disagreement is that we came at it so differently. The only mm -hmm. way it could have been different, even more different is if somebody had to come in and seen the trailer and seen the clips and that kind of thing and knew what they were getting into because I went into it completely blind. I knew women yeah. on a plantation. That's all I knew. And this was the thing. I started hearing all of these arguments about, because I knew nothing about it. I had seen the trailers and that was it. And I started hearing all of these arguments about it being racist. And I'm going, well, hold on. How? How? And I felt it was my obligation as a consumer of media, mm -hmm. as a as a critic, and somebody who tries to you know talk about this stuff, write about it in an educated way yeah. that allows people kind of a bit more insight into it. That it was my responsibility to look into it further. So I did. And on further analysis, the things that she decided to cut out were the wrong things to cut out. The decisions she made were the wrong decisions because what winds up coming to the foreground is a film that people will remember over the original that entirely eradicates race, that makes it about strictly the violence of women as opposed to the power and uh, viciousness of women and their capacity for good and evil. It makes it about well, just we, their victim. But I mean, the thing is, like, you're talking about the violence of women, and the thing is, this is not, for me, this is not like, you know, faster pussycat or anything like that. No, this is not it's this not. is not death proof. No. Nope. This is women being violent because it's wartime and their lives are at stake. But and either there was not a single moment in this movie where I was like, nah, I think there was a better way out of that, ladies. You, you know, I, I, mean, I, I really I I, I bought has, this movie. It has the potential to be infinitely more empowering for women and infinitely more inclusive. And she made a decision that undercut that and that cheats a new generation of women from experiencing what they could have had if she had included the Hallie character, if she had included just those, again, we're talking like five or six minutes worth of dialogue here. Not much. She could have just directly lifted it. And I guarantee you, it would have it would have increased the pace of the film, not enough to belittle her or belie her I still ability. I never had a problem with the pace of this movie. It's a short movie. It's a short, yeah. It's but like 90 minutes. And it feels like it's 120. Oh, no way. No, I was, I was in it. I was in this movie, like, from the get-go. One of the funny things about my show notes for this episode is just, there's one bullet point that in parenthesis just says, Ariel's thoughts. And it's like, <laughs> among like 16 other bullet points, I'm like, no, screw the rest of those. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I, it's, you know, what we're getting into here is all valid and fair. And on both sides. On both I, sides. And it's like, for me, it's, it's, you know, what you were talking about, about the responsibility of a critic is to weigh what is put in front of you mm -hmm. and to weigh what is put in front of you when you do the digging and do the context. You know, like, it's it's everything. I mean, this is an episode that we started by talking about Woody Allen. Yeah. Right? And and this is, it's all valid. It's It varies from person to person on the approach. It does. Um, I, I think it's, for me, it's kind of telling that this is one of the few movies that I saw knowing precious bloody little. Aside from, she got Best Director at Cannes and it was set in the South. That's it. That's all I, and then just off we go. And, you know, you saw it and thought one thing and then did your, did a little bit more homework and thought even more things and you were reading some things before and it's it's so hard because like at what point one at what point is it finished because we may learn stuff 
as the year as the year goes on about production and what people were doing and what people were saying, what people were thinking, that we'll reframe things again, you know? Well, exactly. And I think that comes down to really the basis of it. You saw this film essentially in a vacuum, and I didn't. Yeah. And the, the problem being that this film succeeds in a vacuum. It does not succeed when it's subjected to the rest of the world, and nothing truly exists in a vacuum. We are going to move on with this podcast, not really because I want to, but because I fear that if I don't, we never I'm will. I'm going to break my own record. Oh, uh, yeah, well, yeah, there's that. Um, we do end every review with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible, that if you could take away from this movie and keep that you would. Uh, Ariel Fisher, what would be your souvenir from The Beguiled? Edwina's second to last dress. When they're at dinner before John Crest. That is a handsome, handsome dress. It is a beautiful dress. It's this white satin gown off the shoulder with this dark, dark black trim and just Cut the right within places. within an inch of its life. Yeah. It's like just draping off her shoulder. It's beautiful. Yeah. It is so gorgeous. Yeah. That is hands down what I would take. Yeah. That's, oh, that's a good one. Um, I want some apple pie. You you get the best apple pie in the world. Why would you want it from this damn movie? Because it looked so good. Um, You know, like, this is a movie where food plays into things. Uh, I mean, I don't even like mushrooms, and I wanted those at the end of this movie, which is kind of funny, actually. I I did walk away from this movie saying, see, that's why I don't eat mushrooms. Um, (laughs) But yeah, like, you know, everything about... Everything about the culture of the time is on display, like from the music to the dress to the care of the house to the food. It's all just jammed into this little compact thing that worked for me and did not work for Ariel. Um, I'm almost afraid to ask the next question. We rate on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Ariel Fisher, what do you give Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled? From one to four, I'd give this... I fluctuate between a two and a two and a half. Oh my god, you're crazy. I'll this, say a two and a half. This I'll is be a generous. four star movie. This is one of Not the best. At all. Yes, it is. This is one of the best movies I saw this year. Citizen this, Kane this is a four will, star movie. Are you kidding me? You know, that, that's a whole other kind of four star movie. But as far as <laughs> what I have seen in 2017 so far, this is one of the few four star movies. Would you rate this higher than Get Out? No, they're, they're both four star movies. They're very different movies. Mm. That's, that's very much an apple and an orange. Mm. Um, and telling. Two different sides of, of, of a very interesting story, uh, but no, yeah, and that was well, deliberate. And, well, and, and not only that, but if nothing else, that is an original story. So yep. between the two, that gets points for that. But this is a more handsome story, so it gets points for that. It's so hard. We could be here for a while. We already have out-talked a thunderstorm. That's true. It just sailed right it, past. It's it like, was afraid of me. Yeah, it's, it's like, nope, off it goes. <laughs> and I, oh. um, hey, listen, maybe you're on Ariel's side of this, and you think that I'm nuts, and that I'm you know, being a, a white man of privilege and not understanding what uh, should be told here. Maybe you think that Ariel is missing something and missing uh, you know, a, a celebration of moment for women in film. I'm willing to bet a lot of people think I'm nuts. I, I, you know, well, you know what? Like, the one thing I will come away from this movie is I know there's a lot of people who are going to hate this movie. Like, oh just, yeah, like, there already are. You know, like it's listen, it is slowish. It wasn't slow for me, but I could see how somebody would walk away from it after 30 minutes. In the grand context, not a lot happens. I could write the plot for this on a napkin. I, I see all of that and I recognize it. All I can say is that for me, every hit landed. And that's the thing. I don't. I have no aversion to slow films. Yeah. I have watched some. I, 
They literally sat down and watched funny games back to back. That movie is slow. It has a yes. ten minute single shot yes. in in the most excruciating part of the film. Yeah. I did that literally one day after the other. <laughs> I don't mind long. Yeah. I can tolerate long. I can even thoroughly enjoy yeah. long and languid and lush and all of those other L words. Please keep talking. Sorry, but, what? <laughs> yeah. But this just, the, I, the pacing was off. I just think the pacing was off. I definitely um, do. Please let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore C, or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of the beguiled? Um, we are going to do a, uh, a combined other side where we talk about a bunch of movies that this movie reminded us of. Come on right back after this um, quick break. She's Ariel Fisher. I'm Ryan McNeil. It's episode 180 of the Matt Acast. Uh, we're going to turn the record over, play the other side. Uh, you know, we in the past have done uh, two selections. Um, this uh, series of podcasts, we're kind of cranking them out week after week, trying to catch up on this incredible summer that we've had. Uh, like, out of nowhere, it was just drek for weeks. And then all of a sudden, in the last, like, two or three weeks, we just got this, like, mother low of... Incredible films. You you must admit at the very least that this is an interesting bad film for you. Like it, it is you were talking about earlier how you've walked away from films speechless out of nothing to say. Yeah. This at the very least did not leave you with nothing. It's quite the opposite, it would seem. This far from left <laughs> And it's not and again, like we were just saying, it's not a lot of people are really vitriolic towards this film and specifically towards Sofia Coppola and I know I come down very hard on it. It's not a bad film. Yeah. I just don't think it's all that it could be. Sure. And that, and, and that again, that is a fair criticism. But what, uh, let, let's let's lighten it up a little bit. Mm. What was a film that came to mind of something mm. that somebody could do some further viewing? Like obviously you've gone to bat for the original. Which I will watch over the next which few is, days. Which is my which is my one. So then let's go. That's like my go-to. Okay, so it's from seventy-one. Yep, from nineteen seventy-one, and it is. I was not expecting to love this film as much as I did. I am ready to go to Bay Video and buy a copy for myself. Wow! Like I adored this movie. Okay. It is. It's very nineteen seventies, and it starts with this opening. It the film is uh, stars Clint Eastwood as McBee or John. McBurney is yep. the character's name, and Geraldine Page is Miss, Miss Martha, and it, it's all the same things are, are are in place except you have the added character of Hallie, and off of the hop, Eastwood's character is predatory. He is a threat immediately. He falls out of his hiding tree onto Amy, who, fought, who finds him, who's Amelia in the original, but everybody calls her Amy, so okay. that's where the name comes from. Right, and. He, she's like, oh, are you okay? And like, what can I do? And, and he's like, oh, how old are you? And she says, I'll be 13 soon. He says, ah, oh, old enough for kissing. And he just grabs her and starts making out with this 13-year-old girl. Like, Im literally off the hop. He has one thing on his mind. We know exactly what it is. And he is a threat. He is a predator. And then, you know, they take him back. And, and the, the, the details of the... Coppola version still remain, 
but they're played out kind of throughout. They have this lavish dinner and they make these gorgeous mushrooms and he loves them and that's where they get the idea to have them right. later. Whereas in this one, it's kind of said last minute at the very end, oh, he really liked those mushrooms that one time. See, but Let's I make like, those. You know what, but I actually like that. Like she said, he liked the mushrooms and I was like, in my head, I was like, you bitch. Yeah. Just, it, just, uh, just thrown off there really quickly. I was like, wow, <laughs> like that, that is cold. Well played, but cold. But from start to finish, there's a lot of perfect details in this film. Like this very melancholic, kind of typical 70s kind of spoken word song that plays over the opening credits. All of which are pictures, by the way, the opening credits are sepia tone pictures of Abe Lincoln and slaves okay. and soldiers and and they're they're original prints. Yeah. Like these aren't manufactured for the film. These, right. these are just photos of the Civil War that they took. And over top of it is this spoken word kind of sing songy thing of this man with this slightly off pitch voice singing about you know, don't join the war, dear son, and the spar the the dove will leave you and the sparrow will find you and all of these really melancholic things. So yeah. from the get-go, off the hop, you have this sense of dread and doom and looming death and defeat. And again, you meet him and off the hop, he's a predator. Yeah. He is a sexual predator. And so are the girls. It's... You come to meet them and they have infinitely more power and ferocity and control over what they're doing. And Miss Martha says, out, out of the gate, Oh, if this war continues, I'm just going to completely forget what it means to be a woman. And that is that is a major part. The fact that all of them are sexually frustrated and some of them have never felt the touch of a man. So they're confused by these feelings for this handsome Eastwood. And it just all plays into his greater threat because they're in a moment of weakness. So I have a question then. How does it strike you then that the version that you prefer is a version that's written by a dude and the version that you don't like is a version that's written by a woman? Because you seem to be saying that the, ver the version that's written by a dude is more progressive, has more teeth, is somewhat more feminist, yeah. whereas the version that's written by the woman misses on just about every corner. Yeah. And of course it does. Sofia Coppola's always played it relatively safe. She does what's in her wheelhouse. She uh, she omitted a character who has maybe all of 10 minutes of screen time because she was afraid of what the public would think if she had included her at all. Yeah. Even if she had taken the, the dialogue verbatim. Like, she she literally had the, the blueprints there and she avoided them. And I think that for, for Sofia Coppola specifically, it makes a lot of sense and is almost demonstrative of the greater issue of the male dominance of the industry right. that women do not feel comfortable enough to be completely open and themselves also if a woman had made that film from that if that that version yeah. and had made it today yeah it probably wouldn't have made a buck it would have been written off as being tawdry and gonna make a buck anyway no but but, yeah, but, like, it's, but, but it's critically acclaimed and it wouldn't have had that right. much because but just for the sake of argument here's here's the funny point is and I, and I do believe this, like I'm not saying this to be a shit, um, that you know, we need more voices at the microphone because there are more stories to tell and mm -hmm. we need to be told from the right point of view. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, what we're saying here is 
this story was told right the first time by a guy. And this story could have been told right the second time by a woman, and that's my big argument against uh, okay, it. Okay, that's so you, my oh, okay. That's frustration. Okay. You're saying, so you're saying it's this woman. It's not... It's not women in general. Oh, God, no. I don't know. Who, who am I? I don't know. I, I, who am I? I don't know. We're talking about a Sophia Coppola film, and you're ready to throw it off the balcony. I don't know you anymore. Um, my... my like my other side that I really went to because I went back to it this week just kind of in a bit of a fluke um not a complete fluke because I'm, I'm sure um I, I rewatched Marie Antoinette this week which was one of the films that got me off the Coppola train and a film I did not like um I, I, you know, after uh, Lost in Translation and after uh, Virgin Suicides I was very much on board and then when I saw Marie Antoinette, I did not care for it. I thought it was, I thought it was just Ugh. languid uh -huh. and look at how pretty Versailles is and my costume designer can do this and this and this. And so is this a Freaky Friday moment where you think of Marie Antoinette, what I think of the Beguiled? Probably, yes. Holy yeah. shit. So, but I, I thought, okay, you know what? That was <laughs> more than 10 years ago. I'm older, possibly wiser. Oh, I've I've funny. seen some things. <laughs> Let's go back and see. Yeah. Let's go back and see. And I actually I actually appreciated it a lot more yeah. this time. I, I full on like really liked it, mm -hmm. uh, revisiting it. And it was the same sort of thing. Like the one criticism I will lob at Sofia Coppola, and maybe this is one of the things that was bothering me about the Beguiled, mm -hmm. is she is a director who wants her audience to do the work. And yeah. that's not always fair, mm -mm. you know, like you shouldn't, like, I do like that that can lead to interpretations and lead to people looking for things in between the lines. Awesome. But at the same time, maybe not always awesome. And she does that a lot. You know, yeah. like if you look, she, you, look at, she... you look at Bling Ring, you look at Marie Antoinette, certainly. I still haven't seen the Bling Ring yet. God knows you look at somewhere and she is asking you to fill in a lot of blanks, uh -huh. including the Beguiled, admittedly. Yep. You know, big fat yes. So, but then, what? What? How come you were cool filling in the blanks with Marie Antoinette? And because I didn't feel like I had to fill in the blanks. I thought that it trusted me as an audience member. I thought that it allowed me to it. It afforded me the luxury of acknowledging that I am an intelligent consumer of media. I didn't feel that it was making me do the work. I felt that it trusted me to be able to read. Mm. And that's the big difference. I think something like the beguiled, the the beguiled expects the audience to fill in the gaps without giving them any of the foundational information they need to come to that information honestly. Case in point, you assumed, based on your reading of the film, that they literally did everything out of the best intentions of their heart, and that nothing was fueled by, they didn't remove his leg because of, because of malice or jealousy. Like he was going to die. But they, they removed didn't. his leg because he was going to die. If they were as violent as you're... I, we keep coming back to this movie. We I want to move on. I put a whole other section. There was intro music. It played. If they were just <laughs> interested in letting him die, they would have just let him die. They weren't. They were interested in making him suffer. Uh, then they would have and just this is tossed him out and made him all die of, slowly. All of the groundwork you're, is there. The blueprint is there I in don't the believe movie. that she took his leg to prove a point. Yeah, she did. She no. totally did. Um, totally different. However, Marie Antoinette, there's Marie nothing Antoinette. of the sorts. Marie Antoinette. Um, it's, you know, it's, I, I thought that it was, it's a very specific 
look at privilege and how sometimes within privilege there are people who just have no idea what's going on who are just basically dropped into the middle of it and expected to keep up because it's what it's expected now i have no illusions of oh poor little french girl yeah you know but at the same time it does make you think differently of a girl who was you know plucked out of one life and dropped into another one where people were whispering behind her back and there was all this pressure on her to have a child it's 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 high school and it's also just like you know suburban marriage basically right it's like okay you got the house do you got the two kids no why not why don't you have the two kids you have the car no why not what do you you know you know what what do you you mean he doesn't want to do it he just wants to make keys you're failing as a you're failing as a wife you're failing as a woman but that's the thing like we don't look at regents in that well certainly not anymore but we, you know, people don't look at regions that way. They just look at them like, oh, look at these people who just have all kinds of money and all kinds of... They look at the shoes and the food. They don't necessarily look at what's happening inside. You're and upon then? And now. Like what happens in the bedroom? They don't look at that? You're saying that? No, they do look at that, but I mean, oh, okay. they don't look at... They, 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 don't, they don't look, look at, at the that psychology completely. Yeah, they don't look at it as this guy might not know what he's doing, or they both might not know what they're doing, because I think, you know, they were kids. Yeah. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. No, they had no um, idea. It's just, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a pity about her, you know, you know and, and that's, it's in this movie, but it's talked about in a way that's very interesting, I think. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. I, I love that movie. I think it's, I think it's perfect. I think it's a near perfect film. I, it was, the, the first time I saw it, I just, a lot of those, moments where now I'm con- totally content to think and do the heavy lifting I didn't want to at the time. Mm-hmm. I just I just thought that uh, that Coppola got too caught up in showing how pretty Versailles was and didn't want to actually tell a story. I think to some extent sometimes she overestimates her audience and expects because I I had a my background is in art history. My education background is in art history. I know all about Versailles. I've studied it. I've been there. I've read tons about Marie Antoinette and all of the art that was made for them, all of the palace and what it took to make it and what it took to make France at the time and therefore doing an entire course on just French Parisian history around that time, Mm -hmm. all of it. So I came to that film with a great deal of knowledge. So watching that film, I felt I had to do none of the heavy lifting because I'm watching it going, of course, of course. Perfect. That's a great representation of this, that, or the other. And everything just felt pitch perfect. Mm-hmm. And I think that she maybe does that, that. Maybe that was my problem. I didn't do, I didn't do enough French history. Well, but that's the thing. I think that one of Sofia Coppola's failings is that she assumes that her audience is as privileged and as affluent as she is. That's, that's She fair. makes films for people like her. Yeah. She makes films for herself. Yeah. And not that I think that I am as privileged or as affluent as Sofia Coppola. Right. Very few people are. Yeah. But I am a white woman who has had an, a, a very good education, mm-hmm. you know? So I think that that also kind of plays into some of this, because I can, even with The Beguiled, and I won't go on about this, I promise, I can see the foundations there of more proactive discourses about race, the very fact that it's set during that period, the way some of the men behave and just the groundwork is there but I feel like this one she really just kind of handed off to people to say you do the work right now that I've seen the original that I've done the reading of what happened at the time all of that there are elements of the film that 
make more sense, mm. but it took a lot more heavy lifting with the beguile to be able to make sense of what she meant to say right. than it did for something like Marie Antoinette, where her intention was But that's the funny clear. thing like, for, for you, because for me, I had to go back much, much later okay. and say, okay, let me let me try this one again, Yeah, you know, from, from a different point of view. The other one, um, there, were, there were actually a few that came to mind, but one of the ones that came to mind, um, in terms of setting, because I really actually did like the way this movie uses a sense of place, mm. you know? It, it's, it's very, very specific, and there's a lot of movies that shoot somewhere or come up with a set, and they really don't need to because you could set it in something very, very simple mm -hmm. and still tell the same story. It was my big qualm, you know, to bring it back up, it was my big qualm with Hateful Eight. You know, for a film like that, to film inside of a cabin for 90% of it, I felt, what it, what, why? Why that are you doing this? That was your big qualm? There, 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 was many, <laughs> there were many, but that was one. Um, so, sense of place, what that sense of place reminded me of, actually a different place, but similar era and similar region, is uh, Daughters of the Dust. I still haven't seen Daughters oh. of the Dust. That is on our roster for, we, we, we couldn't find a place for it this year when we did Black History Month. Right. We are going to find a place for it in February if we don't get to it sooner. Yeah. But I have not seen it, and I actually know very little about it, and I'm kind of trying to keep it that way. Okay. I want to come to it fairly fresh. Obviously, yeah. this will change that, and that's fine. Well, no, like, what I would, no, that's perfectly fine. You can all, discuss all I would what say you want is, it's it. well, it's what I like about it is that um, besides the fact of holy hell setting, mm -hmm. like this is a world contained within like one island, mm -hmm. basically at one time in America's history for one specific subculture mm -hmm. um, that you learn so much about mm -hmm. in the course of two hours and same sort of thing like the dynamics of how these people relate to each other and how things work as you go from like everybody shows up on Friday and okay now it's Saturday and by the time Sunday rolls around people are talking you know like that, that, that kind of thing and if the beguile is on one side of the spectrum it's on the other side of the spectrum where it's somebody telling a story that's got a lot in it that is one person telling a very specific story about their heritage um, and doing it right. Um, it makes a great companion piece with Lemonade as well, um, just because a lot of Lemonade is pulled okay. straight from Which it. Which I have heard, yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. when you see it, you'll be like, oh, that's where she got it. Okay. I, I love when that happens in a movie. So that's that, that was another one um, that I thought would make great further viewing um, in terms of setting. Like it's not, it doesn't seem like it's Civil War era, I kind of lost exactly when it's it, I would assume that it's after I think it's after but not long not after. long because the dress is very yeah, similar it's, you'll, it's, you'll you'll have fun like with the clothes it's a, I think it's a little a little later historically yeah, but yeah. not much um, and then the last one I had to go along with this um, was have you ever seen picnic at hanging rock no wow you, you, you're the film scholar what's going on here I'm not a scholar Better than me. I know some stuff about some <laughs> stuff, and I I have one or two opinions. That's it. What <laughs> one or two? One or two, maybe three. <laughs> I think I think I got about all five of them today. Huh. Um, and certainly over the course of this show, um, it's it's a good companion piece in the way that it's a another group of boarding school girls where an incident throws them all into not not chaos actually kind of throws them all into shock 
because okay. they go, it's, it's a, an Australian film. I want to say it's Peter Weir, but don't quote me on that. Um, I know it. Like, I've heard of it, yeah. obviously. I've just um, never seen it. Again, it's a period film, so the, the girls are all dressed in, like, school clothes like they're all in the white dresses with okay. like very very out of green gables okay, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so now we're now we're speaking your language yep. um and, and it's officially my language yeah and, and they go and they go to this they go to hanging rock it's, it's an australian boarding school and they go out into the wilderness to have this literally a picnic at hanging rock and some of the curls wander off and they just disappear and the hanging rock is like combed for weeks and they just never turn up um and everybody is affected by this it's like what do you mean they what do you mean they're gone? What do you mean they're gone? And there's like no trace of them. What do you mean? And all of these so it's it's kind of the whole idea, um, the the reason why I liked that is the idea that you get young children, youngish children, children in general, school children. Yeah. And they have an incident that is shocking. Because that's that's one of the things I wanted out of the Beguiled is I want another movie. Like I want to know what happens to these kids. Yeah in five years in ten years how does this incident affect them because it's it's going to shape like this is this is that line in their life of before and after you know picnic of hanging rock is very much like that too yeah um that's one other reason why i think she could have just if she'd stepped a little further to the left <laughs> if she had just pushed a little bit harder to make it different enough it would be more relevant Sure. But it's not. It's just a lackluster remake. Are there any other modern ones you can think of that it's like you kind of, you, you would rather a, a person, instead of seeing The Beguiled, you'd rather they went to watch? Well, I mean, it's it's vastly different, but I really appreciated yeah. its representation of women was Julieta, Pedro Almodovar's latest. Which I didn't see. Okay, so, all right, yeah, tell me about that one. I because mean, like, I love his stuff, and I, I'm, i like, kicking myself that I didn't get to see that one. It's contemporary. It's a vastly different film. Okay. It, it really doesn't have anything to do with what The Beguiled it's is. Fine. yeah. But it's, it's about this woman named Julieta, who is Argentinian, and it's uh, present day, and she's supposed to be moving away with this, her partner, or a boyfriend, essentially, at the time. She's in her 40s, and just decides to break it off with him and can't go and sits and moves into this old apartment that we find out she has lived in previously and starts writing these letters to her daughter, who is estranged, okay. and whom she hasn't seen in, like, 10 years. And it goes back through her life into present day and back, and present day and back, from when she met her daughter's father to her birth and early childhood and their relationship and then when everything goes wrong and it's very much about a mother-daughter dynamic okay but about kind of the multifaceted nature of what makes a woman a woman as a mother as a daughter as a lover as a spouse and a partner and all of these dynamic roles that we are that that we comprise that we're sometimes shoehorned into and obligations that those roles can sometimes entail on how to get over you know the wounds that we've inflicted on others the wounds we've inflicted on ourselves what is it about Amadovar that he writes women well again like I, I talked off the top of the show about being intimidated as a writer for various reasons that's mm -hmm. one of the things I'm always intimidated as a writer is, is, is even women. yeah not how to write women but I, I will I will never write them properly I just want to be able to write them well. Mm. Well, and that's 
it's hard. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I stay away from fiction, why I'm even getting back into writing personal essays and, and, and all of that, because I don't deal I don't deal well in fiction. I'm not very good at make-believe. I'm good at embracing make-believe, but not creating it. Right. And it, it's hard. It's incredibly hard to create real people out of nothing, yeah. but your own imagination or someone else's imagination. Yeah. He has a very Argentinian sens sensibility, and there is a lot of that that carries over in Spain as well, and granted that's Europe and not Latin yeah. America. But growing up with that dynamic from my mom's side of the family and a friend of mine, Emiliano, who I went to school with, who grew up, who was born and raised outside of Mendoza, it's a very emotionally in tune place. They're not, they're very expressive. They're not necessarily always comfortably honest about the way they feel and the way they express themselves, but they express themselves nonetheless. Yeah. So he has that sensibility in the way he creates these women. And I think he, I think he's lived amongst women in an open and honest enough way so as to actually observe them and learn yeah. as opposed to simply objectifying them, I guess, for and lack parrots. of a better, sorry? And parrot them. Like it, it's yes. you know if I'm if I'm trying to write a character that is very much like Ariel Fisher, mm. it's not enough for me just to sit here and say okay Ariel says it this way, yeah. you know like I it, it's it it's like you're saying it's you have more to know. you have to shut up, <laughs> which I have problems with it most men do, and like you said and listen yeah. and observe yeah. and forget about what you think and instead go with what you like what your senses are telling you mm -hmm. you have to know you have to you have to but you won't know no 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 let's think you won't know no but th that's not i don't mean you have to know as in you have to have the knowledge i mean you have to you have to know them you okay. have to learn them you have to you have to devour them and everything that they are and everything that has made them in whatever and, role they happen to be whether they exactly. are your lover your sister your mistress your exactly. mother and recognizing that say for instance the most uncomfortable representation of women you know your mother is a sexual being yeah that your mother was was sexual before you is sexual after you was sexual during you was also someone else's daughter is your mother is someone's spouse is someone's sister that within one you know within one female being there are all of these diverse entities and little tendrils that sp that spear out from them and to be able to see that each one of those is its own color and its own texture to know them you know what i mean to to devour them that's what i mean when i say that to see all of the pieces of the mosaic you know and the beguile doesn't do that no at all not even a <laughs> see little what i bit. did there um I'm gonna one, one of these yeah one of these days I'm just gonna do an episode called Ryan sits back and listens because <laughs> what I just I'm just this moment while I was listening to you what was going through the back of my head is I love having her on because man do I need to do so little work <laughs> thank you so bloody much um, for arguing with me yeah. and for educating me and continuing to be my wonderful friend and for being on this episode I I really do mean that thank I'm you. not being facetious. Um, that is episode 180 of the Matinee Cast. I have no idea how long this episode is going to be, but uh, I, I want to leave as much of that in as possible because, goddamn. If I may. Yes. Oh. I have I have a thing. Sure. A thing to share. Okay. A new project. All right. Please. So, speaking of women, uh, I have a new podcast coming out. 
Cool. Yeah, what is it's it? coming out in September, September 19th to be specific. It'll be on the Modern Superior Network. Of course. It's going to be called After All, a Mary Tyler Moore podcast. Ah, that's you. That's me. Okay, I saw that. Okay. Yes, I am starting a podcast with my mother. Wow. Yes, she grew up watching the Mary Tyler Moore show uh, up until Mary Tyler Moore's death. I had not seen a single episode. So we are going through the entirety of the Mary Tyler Moore show from beginning to end, me discovering, her rediscovering the social, political, and personal impact of the Mary Tyler Moore show. I can't wait. That, and the day it airs, September 19th, is going to is the 47th anniversary of the first day the Mary Tyler Moore show hit airwaves. Oh, man. That is, I, I look forward to that greatly. Um, what are you guys doing next on A Frame Apart? The next episode is going to be uh, continuing with kind of a blockbuster trend. We are doing a first to last episode on Spider-Man. All of the Spider-Men from the Sam Raimi trilogy through with The Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2. Uh, we're going to take a look at Civil War as well because that was where we saw this version for well. the first yeah. time. And then concluding with the latest Spider-Man movie coming There's out. no way you get that in under two hours. Oh, we'll see. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, and if people, if people want to find you on Twitter? They can find me personally on Twitter at AFIS8, A-F-I-S-8. They show? can find the show at A Frame Apart Cast. They can also find us on Instagram, Tumblr, Facebook, at all of the above. And they can email us at aframeapartcast at gmail.com. There will be links in the show notes, people. My site is thematinee.ca for more audio content. You can go to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. Uh, you can find back episodes on Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple's podcast app, and the iTunes Store. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts where new episodes drop. Feedback on any of the films we talked about, and for the love of God, talk to me about The Beguiled. <laughs> uh, you can email me, ryan at thematinee.ca, Twitter, where I am matinee underscore ca, or facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts? Ryan is wrong. Oh. <laughs> for Ariel Fisher, I'm Ryan McNeil. We'll see you at the matinee.